welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, Awaken. Are you as warm as I am? I am a sweaty mess. Oh. Um, happy World Re- uh, Twin Cities World Refugee Day. Did you know today is World Refugee Day here in the Twin Cities? If you don't have anything to do and you want to get out in that 77-degree dew point, I encourage you to consider going down to Loring Park where it's being observed and celebrated. A whole bunch of refugee organizations and refugees and asylum seekers and others are gathered there um, just to celebrate the diversity of the city and the fact that this place, the Twin Cities, has been a welcoming place for them over the years and that they've been good for us, that they're not a problem, they're a blessing to our society here. So happy Twin Cities World Refugee Day comes around once a year. Um, Before we start, let's just pray and ask God to truly speak to our hearts. Father in heaven, thank you for being right here with us. We open our hearts, we open our minds to you. We yield to you. And we pray that your heart would move into our hearts and that we would see the world through your eyes and reflect your image back to this world. So speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Jenna said, Jenna's gone. As Jenna said, um, I've been working with refugees since 1980. And I have to tell you, you should be jealous because I can't imagine a better life than working with people who've been forcibly displaced and seeing God at work in their midst. But I'm wondering for you, what comes to mind when you hear the word refugee? What pops in there? Anybody dare shout something out? Poor, I think I... War, war, good one, sorry, I'm deaf up here. Fear? Yeah. How about some places? Syria. Syria, bingo. Yep, Syria. Massive producer of refugees, right? Countries like Afghanistan? Boom. South Sudan? Maybe it doesn't get in the news as much, but lots of refugees. Myanmar, remember the Rohingya that have been forced to flee to Bangladesh? Somalia? Those five countries alone produce 70% of the world's refugee population. Five countries. But some of you may have been thinking of other countries like Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Venezuela. You'd be right too. Or maybe you'd think more along the lines of caravans of displaced people moving through Central America or possibly kids in cages. Or maybe um, overcrowded boats crossing the Mediterranean from Libya to Italy. Or maybe just that random image of a sprawling refugee camp in the Middle East or in Asia, or in Africa. All of those images, all those thoughts would be right. They're all in the news. They bombard us every day. But I want to make it personal for a minute and tell you about a friend of mine, Mama Fartoon. And I know Nick's going to put Mama up there, so you can see her. Uh, Mama's (laughs) Mama's from Somalia. Her house was rocketed many years ago while she and her young children were home. An aunt saw Mama in the rubble. 
thought she was dead, scooped up her children, and fled to neighboring Kenya. Many years later, well, she ended up in Kenya as a refugee in a refugee camp, and many years later, she was resettled to the U.S. along with Mama's children. The kids grew up here believing that Mama was dead, but Mama was alive. After she recovered from her injuries, she also fled Kenya to neighboring, uh, fled Somalia to neighboring Kenya and was put in a refugee camp. She's been there for over 20 years now. She did not know what had become of her children, and so in the meantime, she has remarried and has another family there in the camp. We met one day in the camp, and she told me her story. So I asked her, do you know, she had just found out that her kids were, where her kids were in the States. I said, do you know where they are? And she pulled out a piece of well-worn paper with an address scribbled on it, and she gave it to me. And I looked at it, and it said, Crystal, Minnesota. So when I came back here, I went to visit Mama's children in Crystal. They were in shock to hear that I had met their Mama in the camp. And I offered to help them work to try to pursue family reunification to get their mama here with them. The process is expensive, it's uncertain, and it takes many years in most cases. And then the bad news came. We learned that if mama was reunified with her children here, she could not take her family in the camp with her. And so Mama was faced with a decision and choice that no mother should ever have to make. After quite a while, she said, I'm choosing, if possible, to get to the United States to see my children there again. And so we began to work on that, and that happened right about the time when our president was sworn into office. And in his very, one of his very first uh, executive orders, was to stop all Somalis from coming to the U.S. The way for Mama to be reunified with her children was closed. Mama's just one of the lives caught up in the global refugee crisis that is a defining part of the 20, it's a defining issue of the 21st century. Did you know that in the last 10 years, the number of forcibly displaced people on the planet due to war, persecution, and gross violations of human rights, I am not talking about earthquakes, volcanoes, and fires. We're talking about human, man-made causes. Do you know that number has doubled in the last 10 years? That today on the planet, there are 71 million people who have been forced to flee their homes, of which 30 million people were forced to not only flee their homes, but also their countries. We call those people refugees and asylum seekers. Did you know that 37,000 new people are uprooted every day? And that means during this hour that we are together, another 1,500 people will be forced to flee their homes. As the number of refugees in the world continues to rise, Humanitarian space is shrinking. Refugees and asylum seekers used to be viewed primarily as people in need of help. But they're increasingly being represented as a threat to society. 
Some politicians, media, and even religious leaders are referring to refugees, asylum seekers, and migrants for that matter, as invaders. You've probably heard that. Rather than investing in protecting and helping vulnerable people, nations are investing in walls, fences, and military presence designed to stop refugees from crossing their borders. And at the same time, some nations, including our own, are defunding the international humanitarian programs that exist to keep refugees alive. That's pretty dark. Are you with me? It's pretty heavy stuff. I'm sorry, this isn't Happy Sunday. We're going to go down. We're going to drill into a deep, dark hole, okay? But I promise you we're going to land with some hope. So hang in there. You with me? Hang in. There's, it's not all going to be bad, but we've got to go down before we can come up. So let me just ask you a question. Um, what countries in the world host the most refugees? Who's carrying the bulk of the load? You know, when I ask people in the States about that, quite often I hear some people say things, especially white guys my age, I hear them say things like, you know, the U.S. can't be the only country to help refugees. Other nations need to start doing their part. And they're pretty surprised when I tell them that North and South America combined host a grand total of 3% of the worldwide refugee population. 3%. The nations that host the most refugees are Turkey, Pakistan, Uganda, Sudan, Germany, Iran, Lebanon, Bangladesh, Ethiopia, and Jordan. Did you hear those? Is that what you were expecting to hear? Those are the countries carrying the heavy, the heavy load. So what happens to refugees? The world's come up with three solutions. The first solution for a refugee, for their displacement, is to go back home. Go back home to your country of origin. It's not a surprise that most people refuse to go back to a place where they don't think it's safe, because safety is the number one human need. And most of the refugee-producing events in the world are protracted. They're unresolved. They're just dragging on year after year, displacing more and more people. And so last year, a grand total of about 600,000 people were, went home, went back to their country of origin. That's 600,000 out of the 26 million or so refugees. It's a tiny, tiny percent. So thank goodness there's a second solution, and that is to integrate into the country to which you fled for safety. But that requires that those countries have the economic, political, and social capacity to absorb those people. And 84% of the world's refugees are in developing regions of the world. The poorest nations of the world host a third of the world's refugee population. These countries do not have the capacity to absorb and support and integrate all of these people. So the second solution is failing. So let's Thank God there's a third one, and the third one some of us have heard of, it's where you take a refugee out of a camp and resettle them to another country, like the U.S. or Canada or Australia. But that requires that those countries are willing to take refugees. And to be honest, in a really good year, in the, back in the good old days, 
less than 1% of the entire refugee population was ever resettled in a given year, closer to half of 1%. It's never been much of a solution in the first place. That's it. Three solutions, and none of them are working, and nobody argues the point. The result is very serious. Millions of people, millions, are crossing rivers, seas, deserts, and jungles, trying to get to safety. Few countries welcome them. The do not enter sign is everywhere. And people like Mama Fartoon and her family are stuck in refugee camps, where children are growing up in families where the last living relative to have seen their homeland is a grandparent. Can you feel your heart and mind numbing? I do. These are overwhelming things, and it's easy just to say it's too much, I can't do anything, I'm just going to turn off. So let's get to some hope, some good news. And then I warn you, we're going to dive back into some bad news, and then we'll come back to some good news, okay? So hang in there. So the good news is, is there, there are some amazing international humanitarian organizations out there that simply do this 24 hours around the clock every day of the year. They get people food, they get people water, they get people shelter, medical care, and they lay down security so people are safe. That's all they do. And thank God they're out there because if they weren't, people die. But the result of their work is keeping people alive. But if you ask any refugee in any of those contexts if that humanitarian response is a solution to their displacement, they will say no. In fact, they will say that one of their biggest struggles is that they're feeling dehumanized. I have a friend named Muhammad in one of the camps, and he just tells me every day I have to wake up and remind myself that I am a human being and that I have some dignity and some worth because the world is conspiring against that. First, they've got the hatred and violence that forced them to flee their homes, communities, and countries. And then they live in primitive living conditions, often in mud or thatched houses, sometimes in Europe in abandoned buildings, or even here, they're sofa surfing, just trying to stay warm at night in the winter. They have limited freedom of movement quite often. They aren't given access to the marketplace, to jobs. And then there's the rants of the politicians often and the populists out there who are accusing them of being opportunists, liars, criminals, and potential terrorists. And they hear all of that on their smartphones. They see it. They get up in the morning and check the internet too. And then there's the simple reality that the nations of the world are refusing to offer them help. They're not worth it. And then even their dependency on humanitarian organizations to keep them alive can dehumanize them because they're reduced to being just people in need, unable to help themselves. It eats away at their sense of hope and dignity. Can you feel it? And hope to the soul is what oxygen is to the lungs. People without hope would rather be dead. And the humanitarian world openly admits that while it can keep people physically alive, it, is not, it does not have the skill set or the capacity to keep hope alive. In fact, the United Nations called a meeting in December of 2012 in Geneva at the Palace of Nations, 
and it was calling upon the faith-based world to help refugees recover from forced displacement. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees, the highest official in the UN world for caring and keeping refugees alive, he believes that hope was something that the faith-based world has to offer the refugee crisis. That the faith-based world, therefore the church, is designed to deliver hope. That's what he thought and that's what he was hoping for. And to be, you know, it's the truth. When the church is at her best, we promote a life-giving worldview that sustains dignity and hope. We believe in, a, in and we have faith in a loving God who sees and hears and cares about every one of us. Our worldview includes the belief that love is stronger than hatred and that good will not ultimately be overcome by evil. In our book, the Bible tells us, the, gives us the ultimate affirmation of human dignity that we, every single one of us, is created in the image of God. And when we're at our best church, we are an open, welcoming, and supportive community. Now that may not sound like much, but imagine you're somebody who's been ripped out of your home, ripped out of your community and country, and now you're on your own somewhere. Do you see what we have to offer? So that brings us to our text today. And we're going to read two texts, one out of the Old Testament, one out of the New, to get to our saying of Jesus today. Would you stand as we read first from Ezekiel 34? We're going to read verses 2 through 6 and 17. I'd love to read the whole text with you. I encourage you to go home and read it. It will blow your mind. But we're just going to get a sampling so you can see how these two texts work directly with one another. Ezekiel 34 says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you, shepherds, who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, wear the wool, butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. You've not taken care of the weak. You've not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You've not gone looking for those who've wandered away and are lost. Instead, you've ruled them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd, and they are easy prey for any wild animal. They've wandered through all the mountains and all the hills, across the face of the earth, and yet no one has gone to search for them. As for you, my flock, I will judge between one animal of the flock and another, separating the sheep from the goats. And now we'll read Jesus' words from Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He will place the sheep at his right and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Well, the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? 
or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and, fee- and, and go to visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you, you didn't even invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. Amen? You can be seated. Well, let's unpack this just a bit. First of all, did you notice how Jesus' words in Matthew relate to the ancient words of Ezekiel in chapter 34? It's direct. That is no coincidence, folks. Ezekiel's words were well known to the Jews of Jesus' day. And Matthew did too. And he places this parable at the end of a string of stinging warnings and rebukes to the religious leaders of his day. He was exposing them as bad shepherds, just as Ezekiel did. And he was warning them that they were not ready for the long-awaited coming of the God in whose name they served. That's what Jesus was doing. Contrary to what many of us may have heard about this text, Jesus was not primarily teaching on some sort of generic universal judgment, nor was he trying to frighten people into some kind of belief system that would get them to heaven. Jesus was calling out bad shepherds and heartless sheep. Now, this parable is good news if you're beaten down, outcast, marginalized, or vulnerable including people like asylum seekers and refugees, for it underlines the fact that God deeply cares for them by emphasizing that he will judge those who do not. Jesus made it crystal clear that God is not harsh, cold, corrupt, and evil like the religious leaders that they knew, nor are Jesus' people. Parchment was precious back in that day, And Matthew used a lot of parchment to repeat the refrain of Jesus' story four times. He was clearly trying to drive something home to us, and it must be important. Here's the refrain. I was hungry, and you gave me food. There we go. Just seeing if you're there. Uh, I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink, right? I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. That's the refrain of the story. And there's two things, I think, at least two things that Matthew wants to be absolutely sure that we do not miss. First, the people of God do stuff like that. And second, failure to love the marginalized and care for the marginalized and the vulnerable is failure to love Jesus. So, what do the P 
people out there on the street think of when they see a church or when they think of Christians? What comes to their minds? What do they think we are like? What are we known for? Uh, maybe you saw it. It came out uh, around Thursday this week, I think. It was published in Newsweek and a whole bunch of other uh, different news sources and editorials online. Um, it was an opinion piece that was referencing a Pew Research study that just came out. And I'm quoting from the Newsweek uh, version of this here. It talks about what they learned from this study. And 65% of those who claimed no religious affiliation said that they felt the U.S. had a responsibility to care for those who are being displaced by violence and war. 65%. But only 25% of white evangelicals felt a responsibility to help people who've been forced to leave their country due to horrifying circumstances. The author goes on to say, the fact that non-Christians are more than twice as likely as white evangelicals to take the commands of scripture seriously should tell us all that religion as we know it is broken. Ouch. Like many of us here today, I come out of the evangelical world, and I'm white, and I'm old and white and male. And I know the people who are in this study. They're my peers. Something's wrong. Something is terribly, terribly wrong. I can't help but think of Jesus' words in Matthew 21, where he tells the religious leaders... I tell you the truth, tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom, of heaven, uh, the kingdom of God before you do. Well, I want to start wrapping up a little bit, because that's heavy stuff. And I'm just going to give you one last heavy shot, and then we're going to move to some hope. But there are some sober, sober warnings in this text, and we cannot walk out of here missing them. One is that faith without compassion is toxic. It's self-deceiving, and it's dead. Such faith in no way reflects the revelation of God to us in Scripture. No one with a hard and calloused heart towards those in need is reflecting the image of God back into this world. And soul-wrenching regret awaits all those who live life void of compassion. You with me? I mean, I think Jesus was leveling those things right to us. But there's good news here too. The good news is God is compassionate. God cares. And so do his people. And they are out there. There's not just bad sheep and bad shepherds. There's good sheep and good shepherds, right? So don't let the bad shepherds and the heartless sheep blind you to the goodness of God. It's easy to do. We just look at all the depressing news out there and all the bad stuff that's going on in Jesus' name and say, how can I keep going on? Well, that's not all. That's just part of the story. Don't let those guys blind us to the goodness of God. God created us in his image so that we can reflect his image back into this hurting world. And we do that best through acts of compassion. I think it's all clearly wrapped up in the text for today. And this is exactly what the world 
at least from the perspective of the United Nations, which is really the world, <laughs> that's what they're hoping for. They're hoping that we believe what we profess. They're hoping that we will put our faith into action, and they're watching. Here's how Antonio Guterres, then the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, put it back in 2012. He said, faith-based organizations and local religious institutions, that's a fancy way to say churches, can help create and strengthen welcoming communities for refugees. Amen? Amen. In anxious times such as the ones we're living in today, foreigners, foreigners and migrants face negative attitudes in many places around the world, which diminishes the protection space available to refugees and asylum seekers. Racism, xenophobia, and religious intolerance undermine the universal values of tolerance and respect for human dignity. Faith-based organizations and religious leaders can play an immensely positive role in countering such sentiments and building tolerant and inclusive communities based on the common values of caring and respect for the stranger. Amen? That was kind of weak, but he is the, he's from the UN and he's not used to getting an amen anyway. But I amen what, what the high commissioner says. You see, the world is asking us for help. And they're watching to see if we can deliver because they can't deliver hope to the hopeless. And they know it. Well, I have a wonderful vantage point, and I get to see a lot of what's going on worldwide in relationship to refugees, asylum seekers, and internally displaced people. And I want to tell you that there are churches and Christians out there who are rising up. In fact, I believe we're seeing a global movement of the Holy Spirit moving churches into the world of refugees with welcoming arms. It's not all bad news out there. There are good sheep. I got a text from a friend of mine who's an Argentinian Christian leader yesterday. And he was telling me about a seminar that they're doing this weekend uh, that's equipping Christians there for refugee ministry. In Brazil, I know of churches that are working together to sponsor refugees to their country, advocating on their behalf and helping them assimilate into Brazil's society. In Costa Rica, I have a Christian friend who just started his own a faith-based organization that's caring for asylum seekers and migrants that are passing through Costa Rica on their way north. In economically depressed northern France, where the unemployment rate is super high, churches are working together there, providing shelter and a tutoring program for asylum seekers, young asylum seekers that are there. They've opened up their sanctuaries and they rotate around every couple of weeks sleeping hundreds of these kids in their sanctuaries. In the beginning, some of the people would come to church on Sunday and say, it smells bad in here. And I heard one of the pastors saying, that's how a church should smell. That's in France. God bless the French. There are Christian ministries in Greece where they're opening up showers for people who are living on the streets. There are asylum seekers who don't have anywhere to sleep. They're providing food. They're providing childcare and children's programs. They're helping them get medical care. In Jakarta, Indonesia, there's a group of four or five churches there that have seen the asylum seekers that are living on the streets, and they have begun to work together to help those people. 
many of whom are Christians who have been displaced from persecution in Pakistan. And then there's a network of Christians in Turkey, and they're working together as churches, providing food, shelter, and children's programs for refugees. And there's similar ministries in Lebanon and in Jordan that I'm aware of. And I dare not forget to mention the growing movement of churches right here in the USA that are seeking to welcome refugees and help them find their feet in our society. In fact, there's a lot going on right here in the Twin Cities. As churches, including this one, Awaken, as we offer shelter and assistance and fellowship, community, friendship to asylum seekers that have a really hard go just trying to survive here while their cases are being processed. That's beautiful. And then there's the refugee church. Did you know she was out there? Oh, this is great. Embedded right in the middle of the world's refugee pro, uh, situation are our brothers and sisters who've been forced to flee their homes. And do you know what a pastor does when he's been forced to flee a place like the Democratic Republic of Congo or of Burundi or of South Sudan? You know what a displaced pastor does in a refugee camp? They pastor because that's who they are. And so there are churches in refugee camps. Almost anywhere you find refugees, you will find the refugee church. And she is doing amazing things. In fact, I've seen them in some of the poorest countries of the world taking care of the most vulnerable people in the refugee community and even the ones in the suffering host community around the refugee camps. They're taking care of orphans, both refugee and from the host community. They're taking care of single mothers. They're helping the elderly. They're caring for the sick and the HIV positive. The refugee church has no resources, and yet she's got her arms wide open and is caring for those who are suffering around her. I am tempted to go on and on, but I think you get the idea. Good shepherds and good sheep are out there in the middle of the crisis. And many of them are right here in the sanctuary today, too. And that gives me hope. So in closing, I don't think any of us would disagree that the world is in serious trouble. The global refugee crisis is just one of the symptoms. And there's many people out there who desperately need to know the good news that God is a God of compassion, that he sees, he hears, he cares for every one of us. And while there is much news that could discourage us, there is a growing number of good shepherds and good sheep that are out there reflecting the image of God to a hurting world. So let's not lose hope. The world will change. And the kingdom of God will become visible as we feed the hungry, give a drink to the thirsty, as we welcome the uprooted stranger into our homes, into our communities, as we clothe those without clothing, as we care for the sick and the disabled, as we visit those who are stuck in prisons, detention centers, and even refugee camps. And to that end, let us set our sails and partner with God in the healing and renewal of all things. Amen? I'd like to end with a prayer. May our eyes and ears be open to see, to hear, to care, 
for those who are neglected, marginalized, and vulnerable among us. Amen. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.